0: Welcome to New Books in History, part of the New Books Network of- Hi, and welcome to New Books in History, part of the New Books Network of Podcast. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University. And my usual role on the network is as the host for New Books and Genocide Studies. Occasionally, however, I pinch hit for other channels on the network, and that's what I'm doing today. And I'm really thrilled to be doing that today because I, I have a particular interest in memory and memorialization. Uh, and and so today's conversation with uh, James Reston, Jr. is really appropriate for me. Jim is wa- a widely published author of books, plays, and articles, and he lectures throughout the country on a variety of subjects. And his new book is called A Rift in the Earth, Art, Memory, and the Fight for the Vietnam War Memorial. The book is a richly documented uh, an elegantly written narrative of the political battles that surrounded the creation of the Vietnam's veteran memorial. I've read a number of books on this subject, and, and they're all good. Um, but what makes Jim stand out is his eye for the telling detailer quote and, and his ability to provide capsule descriptions that make his creature characters come alive. But he also brings a very personal path to his writing, one that adds depth and meaning to the book. I'm thrilled to have a t- chance to talk about the book with him. So, with that, Jim, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us on New Books in History. No, I'm delighted to be with you. I mentioned in that little intro, this is a, a more personal book than than others. Um, and so I'd like to start just by asking you to say a little bit about your own background um, during the Vietnam period, and and how that intersected with your decision to write this book now.
1: Well, I'm very much a creature of the Vietnam generation, uh, I um, went through that struggle that the whole generation did about what to do personally about uh, the Vietnam War, especially the men who were of uh, draft draft age, and um, you know, virtually all of my college friends avoided service at one, in one way or another. Um, I faced that issue in uh, 1965, where I had been uh, kept out of the service for uh, for a couple of years, even though I was of prime draftable uh, age and, and value. Uh, but in the summer of 1965, when Lyndon Johnson proclaimed that this is really war, uh, I faced that uh, that moral decision about uh, what to do. I was not a, uh, a genuine conscientious objector, uh, but I also didn't really want to continue to lead a kind of an, uh, a fake um, deferment from uh, from the thing. So I decided to go into the military and was in for three years. 1965 to 68, which, of course, paralleled the build-up um, of the war itself. Uh, in the course of that that uh, service, which, uh, quite frankly, uh, I was very pleased that I was not sent to Vietnam, but I was kept stateside through that whole thing, I became increasingly um, disenchanted with the war and, and very much against it in a way. And when I got out, um, I gravitated to the Amnesty movement which was a movement to uh to uh, argue that those who had gone into exile in Canada or Sweden uh, should be brought back into the country with no, uh, with no uh, deficit, no criminality, um, or even with an apology for uh, for having done something wrong. That's what the amnesty movement was all about. I probably wrote more about that issue than any other American writer and it it carried on um it carried on into the mid nineteen nineteen seventies. Behind that whole uh, issue of amnesty was a much larger issue of reconciliation and reconciliation in this case uh, after um after divisive war, this was the most divisive war of the um, of the 20th century, and um, you know was really our equivalent of the Civil War for the for the 19th century. So. Um You know, I was fascinated by that whole thing. It was, it was deep in my sinews about um, the questions of service, particularly service after uh, service in in a um, flawed and uh, possibly immoral enterprise, and then what happens to the nation when that uh, when that conflict is over. So, so I. Turned that issue around in different ways, including the historical way of um, of looking at what happened after the Civil War with the um, with the amnesties of Andrew Johnson and and uh, so forth. As a parallel to the subsequent pardons that Jimmy Carter did uh, in 1976 and, and beyond. So what I'm saying is that reconciliation was a um, was a very important emotional uh, question for me. And I think that uh, by, by virtue of the fact that I had served in the military with an honorable discharge and all of that, and then uh, went over to the other side uh, as an advocate for those who had not served, it gave me... I think the full scope of uh, interest and emotional involvement with both the warrior uh, and with the dissenter. Um, So, uh, in 1985, I wrote a book called *Sherman's March in Vietnam*, in which um, which I uh, discussed the whole. Uh, parallel between the post-U.S. Civil War and the post-Vietnam War, as far as reconciliation is concerned. And then I've done uh, a lot of other things uh, before and after that, Uh, But several years ago, like three years ago or so, I happened to be at Dartmouth College and talking to the advisor of my daughter who was getting a master's at Dartmouth. And he happened to be an advisor already to Ken Burns uh, in this Vietnam series that he was developing. And this professor said to me, this is going to be... uh, the uh, finest work that Ken Burns uh, has done—it uh, or will do—it's—it's uh, it's going to top the Civil War. It will be his legacy. It's amazing what he's getting, and so forth. And I thought to myself, well. You know, that's not going to be broadcast for a couple of years. Um, maybe I ought to get, go back to my old theme and all of this. Huh. Um, there was a seed that had been planted, um, really two seeds even before that conversation in Dartmouth. Uh, one was that uh, I was personally friendly with Frederick Hart, who... Oh. Uh, it became the sculptor of the three soldiers at the uh, at the the subsequent uh, ultimately the the Vietnam memorial. Uh, very controversial, and we we can get into that. Um, but I during the nineteen nineties when we were close in friendship, I talked at great length with him about the controversy over the memorial that he had been central to. The other thing was that um, uh, I have one friend who's on the wall uh, with whom I trained in Army Intelligence back in 1965, and we basically followed the same path up to a point in our military careers Except that when I was ultimately deployed to a to a unit in um, Hawaii that he had been deployed to previously, to my great astonishment, he had left and he had gone to Vietnam. Make a long story short, uh, he was killed on the first day of the Tet Offensive in Hue City in uh, Vietnam, and I was hugely upset. About that, uh, partly I suppose because um, you know it could well have been me. We shared similar interests. Uh, we were on a, on the same trajectory. I was um, lured by the romance. If that's the right word of, of uh, being an intelligence officer in Vietnam, um, and so. You know, what happened to him could, could clearly have happened to me. And that became a central aspect of uh, Maya Myelin's concept of uh, her wall of black granite with the names of the dead. That those who survive go and see the friends that are on the wall and... and um, and perhaps it goes through their mind as it as it has with me that this could well have been been me, not him. So so those were the two emotional uh, seeds of a rift in the earth the the um, the friendship with Frederick Hart and the um, the emotional connection to my uh, my friend on the wall.
0: So so we'll get to the background and the debate in a moment, but but. Because this is a podcast, we have listeners from all over the world, uh, and many Americans know what the memorial looks like, but, but many people in other places do not. Can you maybe describe the memorial a little bit and, and where it sits in sure. Washington and why that's important? Yeah, I can I can do that,
1: but I would really like to say this first. That yeah, please. That, um, that it was very controversial in the... Uh, in the proposal for a memorial about this lost war, at all, in the late '70s, and there is a great hero in that whole thing a, a veteran by the name of Jan Scruggs, uh-huh. who had been badly wounded in in Vietnam, and and um, afterwards he got into uh, psychology in his uh, in his academic work. And even though he was not a booster by any means of the Vietnam War itself, he had felt very deeply that the those who, like himself, had served in Vietnam and especially those who had died needed to be their service needed to be acknowledged in some way or another and so really, through heroic effort on on his part, uh, he persuaded both Congress and the White House to um to have a competition for this um, for this memorial. Uh, now the uh, the rules of the of the memorial were uh, um, several important things. One was the memorial itself, as deeply divisive as Vietnam had been, was not to to uh, suggest the pro or con about the the uh, value of the war itself. It couldn't couldn't be pro war, it couldn't be anti Vietnam war. It it had to be neutral. And the second thing was that that whatever it was had to list all fifty eight thousand uh victims of the war itself those were the two central things and what ensued was this extraordinary competition that was the largest competition in uh, the history of both um, both american and european art uh, ultimately 1421 submissions well out of that there was most astonishing result which was that a 21 year old an um, uh, uh, Asian American woman who was an undergraduate at Yale University won the competition against some of the finest architects and artists uh, in America, and she won with the simplest kind of uh, of a vision, uh, which was simply two you know, grand, rather grand. Triangular slabs of, of black granite that would be joined, and that the memorial itself would be underground. It looks somewhat like a chevron, if you know what that is. I mean, uh, uh, and and it simply was to have the names of the dead inscribed on this black granite uh, with a walkway going down them well um uh, it, the reason that she won in my view uh is uh not so much the simplicity of that uh, that basic design but the description that she made of the of the design which was uh, um, was very moving about Victims of war, and um and also really quite lovely and flowing in her description of this rift in the earth, as she as she described it. Um, well, this uh, this extraordinary result was put up in lights and had an immediate negative uh, response from um, a group of very, very uh, well-connected veterans, uh, very well-connected with political connections in Congress and even in the White House, uh, who argued that this was a disgraceful design, that it uh, was black in color and they... They uh, argued that it was uh, the color of shame. It was below ground as if it was being hidden or it was something to be ashamed of. Some called it even like the black hole of Calcutta or an underground black privy. Some of the language was amazing. And it became very racist, as a personal attack on this young Asian-American woman, Maya Lin. Um, and so what ensued and what this book is about is this not only the making of, uh, of the memorial and the competition itself and the artistic um, issues of what an artist... Or put it this way: What goes through an artist's mind about what would be appropriate to design artistically for a lost war? Um, all of that fascinated me. Um, but um, so, so, so this this group of well-connected veterans. Uh, came after the design, did everything that they could to undermine it, Uh, and it became a Washington story that involved uh, politicians in Congress and the White House about uh, what should happen, whether this thing should be built at all. These veterans wanted to undermine it entirely and have a totally new competition in the whole thing, Uh, or if they couldn't succeed in that because this... Had been a very professional competition, and there had been a valid uh, winner in the whole thing. Then, how could it be uh, improved, as it were, or made uh, acceptable to to them? And that's how the notion of a figurative uh, work of art—that is to say, a sculpture of soldiers from the Vietnam period should be added to this disgraceful wall um, so uh, that uh, that debate went on for several years basically and what you ended up with is I'm sorry this is a long roundabout answer to your <laughs> question uh, this uh, how we end end up with this really quite amazing uh, memorial in Washington that joins together uh, a work of abstract art with a work of figurative art. Uh, And what eventuated was uh, that Frederick Hart's sculpture of three soldiers... Very beautifully done, very detailed. Was it in effect imposed upon the Milein winning design? But uh, much debate went on about where to put these uh, these soldiers in relation to the wall, so that uh, so that it didn't compete with the
0: wall, but somehow complemented it. So that's what we have in Washington. But that's a wonderful summary of the kind of theme of the book. So let's go back and unpack a little of that. You you said there's a competition. So why did they decide to do it as a competition? And who was the jury? Well... You know, the, the place
1: designated for this memorial was something called Constitution Gardens in Washington, which is basically hallowed ground. Uh-huh. I mean, it, it, it was park space that um, was contiguous or is contiguous to Lincoln Memorial. Um, there was another memorial already uh, underway to the founders of the American Revolution um, and you know, there in the distance was the wa- was the Washington Monument, and so on. So there was even a debate w- whether there should be a Vietnam War yeah. memorial put in this rather lovely sloping uh, sloping um, ground. And so when uh, Jimmy Carter authorized that there should be such a memorial, in Congress put a a bill in and, and um, that that uh, this was to happen at least the poobas in the artistic world said well this is so important that it really it really must be an open competition so, that virtually anyone could put in a submission uh, to the thing, and uh, whoever was going to win would be hallowed forever because this is just um, an, an amazing uh, opportunity for any artist to get their work there. So, uh, pushed by Art critics and the art establishment. This competition was was established, and that it was very appropriate that that it be done at the highest level. There were eight judges for the thing that came from the the best schools of art and architecture in America: uh, Harvard and MIT and. Um, uh, Two very very uh, well regarded sculptors that had their work in the finest museums of art museums of, of America were on on the jury, um, and several architects that, that, that built um, some of our most uh, notable buildings in America. So it was a, it was a really a blue ribbon uh,
0: jury. And so, so part of the dispute later on will be about the abstract nature of Myelin's exhibit. Was there any expectation or stated preference in the rules or in the, the the attitudes of the jury before they saw the entries as to what kind of um, what kind of memorial they were looking for? No, I don't. I don't know
1: of any preconception along those lines uh, I mean it it ended up being this amazing scene where each sub- submitter uh, could have two boards that were something like um, oh I would say about four feet by three feet and on those boards would be a visual representation of the vision of the artist. And also a handwritten description of what the uh, what the concept was going to be. With fourteen hundred and twenty-one such submissions, they had to have a hanger at Andrews Air Force to to uh, hang all the submissions there. And these eight um, men went, through, you know, through through the thing to winnow it down to. Something like thirty or forty at first, and then down to fifteen, and finally down to three or four, or something along uh, along those lines. But I think there was no preconception at all. Uh, if you look at all the fourteen hundred twenty one, which of course I have, they're all uh, they're all at the Library of Congress, where I did mo- most of my work on this book. Um, you know, they run the gamut of of um, figurative art to um, very interesting landscape designing and some really kooky things. Uh, and it was just a, a tremendous diffusion of creative uh, thinking about the whole thing. As it happens, the straightforward figurative art artists were a pretty small number, uh, and the much larger number of the whole thing was really a focus on landscape uh, artistry, where you know you you were going to have two acres or something like this of this solid ground, and and how um, it could be imagined that that tourists would come from everywhere to um, to ponder the Vietnam War, and it would be a, uh, a park-like experience of walking through a beautifully landscaped um, memorial. So most of the submissions were like that. Um, uh, there was, as I said, a, a handful of, um, of f- figurative um, sculptures, some that were just simply figurative um Frederick Hart, who I uh, talked about before, a sculpture of the eventual um, three soldiers at the thing, was part of a group. But uh, he had sculptures in his uh, vision of the thing. But he teamed up with a landscape architect uh, who uh, that really kind of dominated this, dominated this mission. So. You know it was really it was an a an the scope of the thing was really quite quite remarkable
0: huh. so you point out in your book that the jury and particularly the chair and i I'm sorry, I think I'm pronouncing it right Paul Spryreagan is that right, or maybe Spreeragan? Yeah. I'm sorry um yeah, that they wonder if there's going to be after they've selected this memorial, they wonder how the public will receive it, and they're afraid that it might not be received well. So, what is it that they're concerned about, and how do they try and prepare for this? Well, um, I think they probably intuitively
1: understood instantaneously that um, if this was just black black granite with with names on it, that um, that people would uh, would object to the, that. That it was going to be underground. Uh, that there was no American flag to be put on it. There was no inscription about the glories of of of, of um, service and gallantry and heroism and all of those things that we often find on war war memorials. So that it would be flat. It was not. It was not laudatory in any way uh, about uh, those who had gone to Vietnam uh, so I think they they understood that uh, they also I'm sure were probably pretty shocked yeah. uh, that uh, when they tore the the uh, you know the tape off the the number and found out that the Author of this uh, this concept was a 21 year old Asian American woman. Um, who recognized that there would be public relations problems with that, um, and so uh, they did their their best to launch the thing in a as glitzy a way as possible. Uh, an instantaneously uh, very well-established architect here in, in Washington was donned as the architect of, of record uh, because uh, Mylin didn't know anything about, uh, about how, uh, the practicalities of realizing this, this memorial. So there were a host of practical problems, about executing this this design below ground, you know, flooding and all of that. So, so was, they pulled out all the stops, uh, and I think hope that they, this would be seen as really quite a wonderful, rem- remarkable, um, uh, work of genius by this, this uh, young woman. But, um, you know, I think they probably knew uh, things were about to hit the fan.
0: <laughs> so you say, Bob, you remind us, Myelin is is young, 21. Um, how does she get along with um, the, I, I, I'm not even sure what word to use, her patrons, her sponsors, her contractual partners, her, uh, the people with the uh, Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund and the architects with whom she's going to work. Well, I mean, one cannot read this book
1: without coming away with a tremendous admiration for the strength yeah. of, uh, of this 21-year-old girl. I mean, she <coughs> was facing, I mean, the powers that she was facing... Uh, the political pl- powers, the the veteran powers, um, you know, the likes of Ross Perot. Um, you know, there is no doubt in my mind that President Reagan um, weighed in on, on this kind of thing. Eventually, that there were, she had detractors in the. Uh, in the uh, Congress who were berating her and her design, Uh, not infrequently, it had a racial tinge to it. And, um, I mean, she just knew what she wanted, and she just stood up and fought against uh, them all. Uh, That said... She was extremely difficult to work with, Uh, and I came away from writing this book being very admiring of that as well, that when somebody said, well, you, you, you insist on this being very thin granite, and if we do very thin granite, it will crack. And uh, it would disintegrate in some way or another. Um, She was having none of it. You know, it was not to be thicker because she had this metaphor in her mind of taking a knife and cutting this rift in the earth, and that's the way I got going to be. Um, She uh, had to fight about about, uh, an American flag these veterans thought it was disgraceful that there was not an American flag there so indeed there was a there was a bill put into Congress that that would legislate that there had to be a forty foot American flag at the apex of the of the wall no nothing doing she said and the artistic world supported her that that would completely undermine the artistic Notion of this this horizontal uh, creation by having a vertical piece go right at the uh, at the apex of the wall it was absurd um, and when this compromised notion that was a kind of sop to the uh, to the veterans who hated it to impose a um, a figurative statue on, his, on her work. She fought it tooth and nail. Uh, the argument was she had won this competition with this vision, and that it was a professional competition she wanted. And to, um, to impose the, a statue upon her artistic uh, work was like. Uh, you know, painting a mustache on the Mona Lisa. It was uh, an atrocity artistically. Well, ultimately, uh, her uh, design possibly was not going to be built at all if she didn't compromise. And that's where it became a a Washington story of uh, what the... uh, what the compromise should be if there was to be this uh, figurative uh, uh, work of art imposed upon what would it look like and once once we saw what it would look like if it wasn't too outrageous where would it be put in relation to her wall so it didn't undermine the whole thing. These were very interesting artistic uh, judgments and they were fought out uh, somewhat in Congress, uh, and also in a little agency called the Commission of Fine Arts here in Washington, that had the ultimate uh, had the ultimate power to uh, to agree or not agree to something. Uh, all of that said, uh, the sculptor Frederick Hart was very helpful. In the end, with what he created, because um, while he is being pushed by these veterans to do some sort of heroic statue about, you know, charging up hills heroically against the enemy in some fashion or another, uh, I mean, the um, sculptures of places like Fort Benning and Fort Jackson, who uh, were. Invoked just the kind of thing that needed, was needed for for this wall, so no nothing doing said he that would be totally inappropriate uh not only for the wall war perhaps but but also in relation to the to the wall. I mean, you couldn't possibly have a sculpture that that had a soldier saying, Follow me' Looking at a wall that had 58,000 dead on it uh, it would be outrageous and ridiculous. And so what ultimately he was going for in the crafting of his three soldiers was an accent on their youth and their camaraderie and their sense of awe and and certain confusion in their faces and so on. And so it's left to the viewer of this extraordinary uh, uh, place in Washington to uh, decide for themselves as to whether this, um, these two works of art really work together. Um, but many years later, uh, here we are, whatever it is, 35 years later, these artistic uh, questions seem to be rather esoteric because uh, this is the memorial that we've got and it's the most successful memorial in Washington by far and it's become a kind of uh, spiritual place in Washington that is
0: absolutely unique. So, yeah, I I want to get to that just a second. So maybe the way to get to that for me is could you, add, could you say a little bit more about the opponents? And I'll just give you a few names. You don't have to mention them all, but uh, people like Tom Carhart or James Webb or, or you mentioned Ross Perot, uh, and you mentioned some of the things they disliked about it. How, how did they try and press their case? What were their tactics? Um, and, and did they share a kind of common vision for what the space should be if not for violence proposal? Well, there are really only two uh,
1: important uh, people of the detractors. One was Jim Webb, um, who at the time was um, was in a congressional committee of some note for veterans. Uh, but um, he was and is a very powerful personality. Um he is an ex-Marine who was in the thick of combat in uh, in Vietnam. And then when he came out of Vietnam, he came home and he wrote a very successful novel about his experience. Uh, so um, he he was really quite a, a, an estimable detractor. Uh, once he went public with his uh his qualms about the uh, the design, he started to uh, write op-ed pieces in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post, um, and he started to lobby in Congress because he was already well-connected and started to lobby against this and uh, indeed got some uh, pretty strong-willed congressmen uh, behind his uh, his position in the whole thing. So, as we all know, he went on to become senator from Virginia and ultimately a presidential candidate in uh, 2016, briefly, thank goodness, uh, as a presidential candidate, but um, very powerful personality. And so, the other was Ross Perot, uh, who um had a, um, a roommate in uh, college who I think ultimately died in Vietnam. But Ross Perot uh, was this, uh, or is this lo- loquacious, um, fast talking, immensely successful Texas businessman who also ran for president uh, you know, much more successfully than Jim Webb did and he was a very important national figure at the time. Um, interestingly, he was also a um, contributor to the original um, group that uh, that Jan, Jan Scruggs' this group that I, I mentioned, uh, who were trying to raise money for for this memorial. Ultimately, they had to raise something like $7 million. And Ross was an early contributor to this thing. When he saw the winning design, he was totally horrified at what he had contributed to, and immediately became a a detractor of the thing, cast aspersions on the on the group that had, uh, Jan Scrubs' this group that had been behind this whole thing started to demand his money back and and on and on. And there ensued in this war, I have referred to this as the Second mm-hmm. Vietnam War, um, uh, there would be a rather regular national television feature in places like. Um, CBS and and um, and NBC, where uh, where a mile in and Ross Perot and Jan Scruggs would be a, a threesome on national television, you know, shouting at one another about their various various positions in this whole thing. So it it became a national uh, controversy, and as I said, the mem- the memorial per se was very, very much in jeopardy, um, and it only ultimately happened by virtue of this compromise uh, to add a statue.
0: So you mentioned, I think and quite appropriately, the 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 fact that the memorial has now become not just accepted, but widely admired, wildly admire, admired even. Um, and so I'm wondering where you think American memory of Vietnam is now, and, and what role the memorial played in that? Yes, well, um,
1: for starters, this memorial has changed the way in which wars will be uh, yeah remembered forever. Um, It came into the debate about the other memorials to various American wars that are in Washington and uh, a large preponderance of them are, you know, prominent men on horseback. Um, And this memorial has has changed that. I think it, it will be very hard in the future To um, to do anything like what uh, what most of the memorials to war are like in in Washington, Um, I went to Vietnam um, when I was at the end stage of writing this this book, and was taken to a memorial, a a uh, hallowed ground in Vietnam for the dead. Uh, of the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong, it it is a very lovely site just north of the of the, the demilitarized zone, as it used to be known, um, and it has pagodas and it has uh, individual graves for. <laughs> for the soldiers who died in, in the conflict. But interestingly to me, within each of these pagodas that are salted around this, this cemetery um, was slabs of black granite with the names of the North Vietnamese dead. So in effect, Mylins' Lin's um, concept and the Vietnam Memorial uh, uh, had an influence on our old enemies in the way in which they would, they would uh, choose to, to memorialize their dead. The extraordinary thing to me about this memorial is its transformation in the last 30 years. Uh, it began as a veterans' memorial. It's no longer a veterans' memorial. It's uh, become widened to the, uh, to the whole Vietnam generation, those who, uh, who fought, but also those who resisted. And I have argued very passionately that the memorial, as it now stands, is as, is as much a comfortable place for those who resisted the war as for those who fought in it, that as a resistor. Uh, in the streets, you know, protesting with great uh, vociferousness the uh, wrongness of the Vietnam War. When they go to that memorial today, they can feel good that they look at the terrible carnage of that that war and know that they had a part personally in trying to stop it. So, so it's transformed in that way, I think, widened in, in that way to the whole uh, Vietnam generation that faced this terrible choice about what to do. Beyond that, as the um, decades have, have gone on, I think it's superseded the Vietnam War itself. Huh. And become a memorial to all wars, uh, and to the cost of war. This was central to Vitmylins' concept from the beginning. That that's what what one was meant to ponder as you as you looked at this uh, at this physical space. Uh, that it was about the cost the cost of war. And in the writings, including my own, uh, in the last couple of years, I mean, it's been pointed out that that uh, in the transition from the from the Johnson administration to the Nixon administration, when there was now it's proven a real opportunity to end the Vietnam War in 1968, that was a moment at which there was there were 19,000 dead. In the Vietnam uh, War, and we end up with fifty-eight thousand of the things. So, so uh, it's now a memorial, prodded by uh, by this divisive war, uh, to uh, to all wars, and it's become this place of contemplation, this place of spiritual contemplation. Uh, and, you know, people from all over the world want want to see it. They don't remember anything about coup or maybe even Mi Lai or, um, uh, or any of the other great battles, the Tet Offensive. I just don't think that the preponderance of people who go to the Vietnam Memorial nowadays, that, that their mind rests on the details of the Vietnam War itself. It's transcended that um, and became become this uh, really quite quite remarkable spiritual space in Washington.
0: So, and I tell my students this, sometime 10 years from now, 15, 20, it's not really clear to me, we're going to have a discussion about a memorial um, or a monument or something about Iraq and if the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan what what can the debate and the process by which Maya Lin's memorial was chosen and constructed how can that help us think about how to memorialize the wars we're in now well i
1: I think it will be uh, much different um, I mean it's um I think part of the um, disgrace of the Vietnam history that that um, Richard Nixon worked very hard to de-emotionalize, if there is such a word, uh, Vietnam um, uh, War, that he was pursuing by uh, by ending the draft and um, establishing a volunteer army. Um, the 58,000 uh, dead uh, came in a period when every young man of draftable age was uh, required to go into the military, and uh, if they went into the military and they were ordered to Vietnam, they had had to go. Um, by the establishment of a volunteer army, uh, there's all this claptrap now about... Um, our professional army we mm-hmm. have the most professional army in the in the world, and it's made up of people who have voluntarily gone into into the military there is all of this glitzy advertising uh, that uh, that is meant to lure young men into into volunteering by all the excitement and adventure and all the, tech- the fabulous technology that uh, <clears throat> that uh, they're going to get to use and so forth and so so it's moved into this PR uh, thing. At the same time, uh, and I guess this is a good thing, um, the uh, victims of of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan are by comparison to Vietnam, quite small. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about a couple of thousand deaths uh, in both of those wars, and in the endless uh, Afghanistan war, um, you know, we're talking about you know American soldiers just advising and never actually being in harm's way and so forth. Even though I guess Trump is changing that, but but at any rate, um, you you know, if we can imagine the end of uh, of Afghanistan, uh, I guess the Iraq thing is um, is over. But the Middle East is in total chaos. Um, What would artists think? If given the uh, the challenge to memorialize those wars, it certainly wouldn't focus on the enormity of the of the dead. Um, it might uh, something that that um, focused on bravery and and technology might be the way that uh, as, that we would want to go. There is, they have, the politicians have managed to detooth the, the thing to the extent that, that the American people are disconnected from, yep. from the war in uh, Afghanistan and the war in Iraq in a way that when you had the draft with Vietnam, they were not disconnected. Uh, so, you know, maybe something that focuses on patriotism and, and valor and. And technology and special forces and cyber warfare and all of that, all of the bells and whistles that we're now getting, maybe that's what, what would, um, what artists would would think they ought to do and what politicians would think
0: we ought to have. So, yeah, I think it'd be, uh, I think it'd be very different. Well, you've been very generous with your time, Jim, and I really appreciate it, and, and, as I've said at the beginning, it's a wonderful book. Uh, I learned a lot from it and uh, highly recommend it to the listeners. Uh, I always end podcasts in the same way, by asking guests to suggest a book or, or two, maybe a movie, something else, um, something that, that was important to you while you were working on this book or, or, or thinking about this book. and. and uh, maybe framing that as, what should my listeners read this weekend? So so what would you suggest?
1: Well, the, uh, I think that the, uh, the Ken Burns documentary yeah. series is probably the best documentary series that's ever been made and ever will be made. Wow. Uh, I seriously doubt that any other war in the future um, can be as graphically... Uh, captured as he was able to do over a ten-year ten year, um, period, it's absolutely going to be head and shoulders above anything we'll ever get again. Um, so I was, um, um, you know, I was very eager to become part of the launch of his um, of his series. Uh, for a literary reason, Uh, and that is that I have found in other work that sometimes when there's a great event that happens uh, and the author chooses to attack it from a deflective angle, from a side angle, some very interesting um, insights can emerge. And so you know, what I set out to do knowing that Perns' thing was coming and knowing that I would be published at the same time, that um, I was going at the memorialization question. Mm -hmm. The memory question um, would be quite different, though complementary, to seeing this awful war be... uh, be so graphically displayed. And both sides of that war being so intimately um, chronicles. that was just totally amazing. Um, so, um, yes, he touches on the memorial at the end of the thing, but that's not what's going to be remembered about. Yeah. Uh, about that series, so you know, I'm very glad to be out there, which you know, quite all by myself with uh, with this kind of treatment.
0: Well, I have all 15 hours of it on DVR, and that might make for a long weekend, but it's I'm, I'm looking forward to see it, and I I've as with you, I've heard lots of praise for that series, so. I want to thank you again, Jim. The book, as we said, is A Rift in the Earth, and this is James Reston Jr., and thank you so much, Jim, for being with us. Thank you, Kelly. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with James Reston Jr. about his new book, A Rift in the Earth, Art, Memory, and the Fight for the Vietnam War Memorial, published by Arcadia. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or Stitcher or other podcast providers. Or from the webpage for the New Books Network of Podcasts. Thanks for the download, and have a great month.